0: All right, good evening, everybody. I appreciate you joining us tonight. Uh, we can open up our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And as you know, we're going verse by verse through this book and this particular chapter. if uh, If I'm understanding it correctly, we're gonna be dealing with the mechanics of giving, as you can see on the screen just below me. And I've given you an outline for the chapter. And uh, before I get into explaining that, I would like to begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right into this chapter tonight. Father, thank you for this opportunity to once again open the Word of God and to study it, to learn more about you and about this particular part of our, of our Christian life and uh, how to use our finances. And Lord, I, I know there's uh, some even deeper lessons to this. Please speak to our hearts. I pray you guide me. As I uh, try to explain these verses, please fill me with your spirit. And Lord, uh, all we want to do tonight is honor you by, by uh, hungrily and eagerly listening and absorbing this truth. So please, God, help us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. The mechanics of giving, I think, is what we're going to be primarily focused on throughout this chapter. How does it work? Why should we do it? Um, what should we expect from it? But as I mentioned in my prayer, I think there are some, some other things that we can learn from this chapter. Just like the previous one, we talked about how you can get involved. That was the greater lesson. And I think that it, uh, it bleeds into this chapter a little bit. That same point of getting involved, not just in giving, but in any way. We're going to learn about the mechanics behind that. So here's the outline that I'm proposing. Verses 1 to 5, Paul is going to talk about his motive For writing this part of of the epistle, this part of the letter. Why is he hammering so hard on the topic of giving? And then verse 6, we'll talk about multiplied results that come through giving. Verse 7, how you should be moved by God when you give. Verses 8 to 11, giving makes grace abound. And I don't think we'll get that far tonight. I'm going to try to get through numbers 1, 2, and 3, but uh, just so that you understand what we're aiming to, to, to cover eventually. Number five, we'll talk about how giving brings about many thanks, or, or many thanksgivings is the biblical term. That's in verse 12. And in verses 13 to 15, we'll see how giving is a ministry experiment. And we'll talk about that further when we come to it. Now, verses 1 to 5, we're dealing with motives. and we, we will learn by, by verse 5, we will see how Paul wants these Corinthians to give as a matter of generosity, not that they've been compelled to do it or have to do it. It's certainly not to fulfill Paul's own covetousness. Paul doesn't get any commission off of how much they give, so that has nothing to do with it. Um, so we will deal with the motives of the Corinthians but also Paul is explaining his own motives. Why is he talking about this subject? And I think at every preacher's in every preacher's life, in every preacher's ministry, he does, even if his congregation doesn't demand it, he feels a bit of a need to explain why am I talking about giving? Because some preachers are obviously greedy and they've abused uh, their church's generosity. Other preachers have the best of intentions Giving is a—it's a biblical fact. It's a—it's something that we have to do. We we have to deal with it. We should give generously, um, but we do feel compelled. As the I feel compelled as a pastor to to explain why am I touching on this? Why am I asking you to give and to give generously? So throughout Paul's uh, letter, throughout Second Corinthians, he is defending his ministry in in different ways. There's different facets of the ministry that needed to be defended because not all of the people in the church of Corinth were on his side. He had some enemies, some adversaries among the the Corinthian people. And they were sowing discord in that church and turning some people against Paul. So Paul felt compelled to explain his motives uh, for uh, for writing what he's writing. So we are gonna learn about the mechanics of giving some very important things in these first few verses uh, but we're also seeing Paul's motive now starting in verse 1 he says for as touching the ministering to the saints it is superfluous for me to write to you so paul acknowledges that these folks already know about this subject and he in verse 2 at the beginning of it he he says as much for i know the forwardness of your mind i know how Ready, how eager that you are concerning this subject. Now, this ties back to what we studied in chapter eight, where he said a year ago, you were already prepared to do something about that. So Paul is acknowledging, I know you guys are aware of, of how important it is to give and to give generously and to help and to get involved in, in this particular way. So it's superfluous in that, I know you know this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. And I think we've all said that at some point, right? You've probably used the phrase at some point to say, you said to somebody, it goes without saying, and then you say it anyway, right? Uh, Preachers do that all the time. The reason we do this is not to be annoying or to nag you, but to stir up something that you've already known. And especially for the Corinthians, I think Paul might've been a little bit concerned. Last year, they were ready. But maybe right now they need this reminder, a gentle reminder, or maybe a bit, uh, you know, maybe they need to be shook a little harder, but they need to be reminded of how important this is and, and how, how great of an effect this can have on, on the people involved. And we're gonna see it's not just the recipients of the money that can be affected by this and be blessed by this. There's more to that topic. So he says it's superfluous for me to write to you. So he's not going to go into all the basic fundamental building block ideas for giving. They already know those things. But he is going to say a few things about why he's writing. Uh, Let me expand it on this, or expand this point a little bit beyond giving. Guys, you hear me constantly talk about various topics. There are certain things that are of the utmost importance, I believe, in a Christian's life. Things such as reading the Bible and prayer, coming to church, uh, giving, right, witnessing. These are some things that you do hear in sermons over and over again. Why is that? Because they're important. They're going to benefit you maybe more than you know, and even though you already know it, it won't hurt you to be reminded of that thing and to be stirred up so that you can properly use it. Now, there is a chance, right? especially when you're preaching to a a larger congregation, you might have some visitors there, some newer Christians that don't know those things, and therefore they are hearing it for the first time. You possibly have been in church 10, 20, 30 years. You've heard all of this before. So be aware of the fact the pastor may not be trying to nag you. He might be trying to teach some newer folks amongst the congregants. But at the same time, as you listen to it, take it, for what it's worth. It's a good reminder of of what you need to do. Now, it could be that the pastor's already talked about it and the truth, the importance of that particular subject has not sunk in yet. So therefore, it might be necessary for somebody to say it over and over and over again until that truth sinks in. Let me give you a couple verses that would speak to that idea. Uh, You might remember this parable that Jesus used, the sower and the seed, talks about the seed falling by the wayside, and then there's some that falls among thorns, some of it falls on good ground, but notice this particular one, Mark chapter four, verse five, Jesus says, and some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. I've, I've turned you to that verse simply to say that for that particular crowd, It didn't sink in the seed fell on the ground and something came of it right there there was a certain amount of growth just for a short while but then as the story goes verse 6 the Sun was up it was scorched because it had no root it withered away so nothing really came of it we might use the phrase it was a flash in the pan there was a lot of bang but then it was over quickly it didn't sink in and therefore you would need more seed to be sown. You would need it re-explained. Um, I think the writer to the Hebrews he also will touch on the same thing here in, in Hebrews five verse eleven. Now he's he's uh, on the heels of talking about Melchizedek, and then he says, "Of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing." He says, "You guys have a hearing problem." Verse twelve. For when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, the words of God. He said, you guys should be discipling others at this point, but shame, you're at such a stage that you need someone to sit you down and re-explain these basic principles. He finishes that verse by saying, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong Meat well now. The Corinthians, I don't know if you want to put them in this category because Paul acknowledges that they they understand giving, they were very ready to do it. It's not as if they were clueless, it's not as if the uh those that particular seed right of the that that part of the word of God did not fall on deaf ears, but they might have needed a nudge, a reminder of how important it was. So, let me give you another another reason that you would need to repeat something to, to people. They've heard it. And I think the Corinthians fall in this category. They heard it. They started to do something with it. And it wasn't just a flash in the pan, right? They they They, they really put some effort into this. And the church had not dissolved. It's not as if they had completely forgotten about Paul or about these poor saints in Jerusalem. But... They got distracted by something and they weren't following through on what they once knew. So Paul said to the Galatians, ye did run well. Now notice there, there was prior action. Ye did run well, just like the Corinthians. They started off, they were running the race, they ran well. And then Paul asked, who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? So why is it that you haven't followed through on what you knew? Can I bring it home to our church? Um, there are several things right? we talk about, we, we do, we're busy about. And maybe for a while you participated, you were involved, you ran well. Is there something that has distracted you, entangled you, maybe stolen your zeal? Do you need maybe a gentle reminder? Maybe it's in the area of giving or witnessing or prayer or coming to church, right? I I know we're a bit hindered because of all the regulations, but you know as well as I, there's something that can be done. You can get there if you'd like. There are probably some ways that you used to be more involved in, what excuse is it that's keeping you from that prior involvement, from running the race that you used to run? Notice in verse two, back in 2 Corinthians nine, verse two, Paul says, for I know the forwardness of your mind for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia that Achaia, that's the Corinthians, was ready a year ago and your zeal hath provoked very many. So Paul, as he visited these other churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, the Bereans, he bragged about the Corinthians to those other churches and Hearing the stories about how zealous, how excited and eager the Corinthians were, it really helped the Macedonian people. Your testimony affects other people. Make no mistake about it. Your zeal can provoke others. This is one very strong reason that it's important to assemble frequently. Right In the book of Hebrews, we read exactly that that we should consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. You, no matter whether you like it or not, your behavior is going to affect somebody, good or bad. Right? No man lives to himself. No man dies to himself. Paul, he says, guys, I've been bragging about you, and you guys have been such a blessing. Just your story, just your testimony has stirred up these other people, these other churches. And as you're going to see, verse 3, 4, and 5, Paul, it sounds like he's a little concerned that the Macedonians might pitch up or other people might pitch up and find out, wow, the Corinthians, all these stories were heard from Paul. They might have been running well, but these days, not so well. And whereas they might have been an encouragement at one time, now they would have the opposite effect. Now, as it speaks to, at the end of verse two, he says, your zeal hath provoked very many. Let me ask you, you personally, how does that verse hit you? Does, can you think of some people in your life that have provoked you to love and to good works that spending time around them once it, it makes you want to be a better Christian. It, it helps you fall deeper in love with Christ. Are there some people like that? Now, let's turn this around. Have you ever been that person? Now, I know that might be an awkward thing to think about, right? I'm, and I'm not asking you in, in a prideful type of way to examine that yourself. But maybe you can remember a time in the past where somebody's come and said, Man, you're, you're such an encouragement. You're such a blessing. You've really helped me. Maybe it's been a while since anybody's come and said that to you. Maybe it's been a while since your involvement has made that kind of, or had that kind of impact on somebody, but uh, can I just encourage you tonight? It may be superfluous for me to say this because you already know what you need to do. I just want to remind you that you getting involved and doing what you can with whatever resources or time you have can really make a difference in the lives of the people around you. In verse three, can I, I want to just share one quick anecdote about that, just an example. When I went to India a few years back, when Botma and I traveled to India together, we visited Pastor Vimal there. And this man, he oversees about 40 churches, and he runs a children's home. Um, I, I, I would, I, Bhatma would know better than me. I would say there was anywhere from 40 to 50 kids, orphans, many of them, in that children's home, and Vimal, he and Botma would go out together. I, I was quite sick while I was there. Uh, I did not accompany them on these late night journeys, but they would go out at 10 pm and stay out till one you know 12 o'clock midnight, one in the morning. The churches in the villages of Jaarede that was the city that we were in in India those village churches would assemble at midnight for prayer meetings and this was not some special thing that they did just because we were there this was the normal behavior for these churches and i've got to tell you that provoked me that that pricked my heart in the good in a good way it brought conviction, but necessary and good conviction. It pressured me, but in a good way. You understand that pressure can be a very good thing. It can be a, a wonderful motivator if you handle it correctly. But to hear about, you know, the next morning, I'd go down for breakfast and Vimal look a little tired. Not Vimal, how you doing? You know, we were out a bit late for prayer. You know, starting the next day, knowing that, that those people had been up praying the entire night before, that really did, that really did fire me up for the next day. I'm gonna put this next slide up here. We're dealing with this passage. I should have put that up earlier. Let me continue now in verse number three. He says here, yet have I sent the brethren. So notice that first word, yet. It's a transition word. So he's gonna change the tone a little bit. You guys have been such a blessing and I've been bragging about you And your story has really stirred up some people, helped them. Yet, nevertheless, even though I know you know this, and I know you've been, you ran well in the past, I've still sent some people. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf. So in this way. That, as I said You may be ready. So notice that phrase, as I said, that that shows you that Paul is explaining his motives for writing this letter, especially this part of the letter. He says, guys, I've sent these other brethren to help you get this offering together because I've been trying to encourage and stir up the Macedonians. And if these other brethren and some of the Macedonians pitch up, and find that you're not ready, guys, you you might be a discouragement to them. So the reason I'm sending these guys is not to reteach you. It's not that you're completely ignorant, but I just want to make sure you're prepared. So it's not so much that Paul's trying to pressure them and force them into giving. He's not trying to twist their arm in that way and manipulate them. He just wants them to be ready. And Paul's taking the necessary measures to make sure that these Corinthians live up to their potential now when it comes to talking about a person's motives how do you know why I'm doing what I'm doing how do you know that you know it's hard to convince people sometimes what your motives are because Two people can say the same exact thing and have very different reasons for saying it. So Paul, he's kind of pouring out his heart to them saying, guys, please understand, this is not a thing of, of pressure. It's a thing of preparedness. And I would love to say the same to the folks in our church. Guys, when you hear me talking about getting involved in whatever area it is, doing more in whatever facet of the Christian life is being dealt with at that moment. I hope you understand my heart in this. It's not to nag you into a certain behavior. These things are, are coming from a place in my heart, in my life, where, where I, I want to see you enjoy the fullness of the Christian life. I want to see you live up to the potential that you have I have seen some run so well and then cool off. I've seen them make such a massive difference and then see them back away. And I don't wanna see that happen to anyone. I don't wanna see it happen to anyone else. I've seen it happen in my own life. And I, I know how it feels to look back at a month or three months or a year or two years and regret the lackluster effort that went into it. And I don't want anybody else to experience that. So if I have to call for other brethren, if I have to ask a visiting preacher to step in, if if I have to preach on a certain subject a little bit more, I don't mind doing that. I know deep down my motives for doing it. I want you to be ready. Not just when... These brethren come, right? I want you to be ready so that when Jesus comes, you can stand before him unashamed, confident, knowing that you did as much as you could with what you had. In verse 4, Paul says, Lest haply, if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we, that we say not ye, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Right so Paul's been bragging about the Corinthians. The Corinthians could easily respond to this and say Paul, you know, you've been telling everybody that we're on this level. You shouldn't have said that. We're not on this level. We're down here at this level. So that's why Paul acknowledges you're not the ones that are going to look bad, be embarrassed because you didn't make these claims. You never said that you were spiritual giants. I'm the one I'm, I put myself out there. I said, it was my, Paul's relying on his discernment. He, can I use the phrase, he read the room and said, the way I view these Corinthians, they're, they're in love with God. They're the real deal. Now they got issues, right? He, Paul didn't, he didn't shy away from saying that either, but he knew that there was a, a, a portion of that church that really did love the Lord and had this great, potentially had confidence in them. So the Corinthians might have been able to say, listen, we never said it, but Paul is acknowledging, guys, I said it. And like any parent with their children, right? Paul doesn't want to be embarrassed when visitors show up in the Corinthian church and find out, wow, this church isn't nearly what Paul said it was. Now, I don't think this is Paul being worried about uh, you know, his pride being hurt. I don't think this is an egotistical thing where Paul is saying, guys, make me look good. But I know just any of you that are parents, I think you can associate with this feeling that whenever you have visitors come over, right? I mean, kids will be kids and sometimes things happen that you you weren't prepared for. But wow, it, it's painful when you've been telling everybody how great your kids are and then Visitors come around and they do something that embarrasses you, kind of breaks your heart. I I don't think that there's anything necessarily wicked about that. Uh, Let me give you a good biblical example of what a difference this can make. You might know this story, 1 Kings chapter 10, when the queen of Sheba comes to Solomon. She had heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. She came to prove him with hard questions. So she comes, you know, uh, with all these tough Bible questions and Solomon has the answers. Verse 2, 3, 4. Come on down to verse 5 with me. Uh, no, no, verse 4. 1 Kings 10, verse 4. When the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. It took her breath away. Verse 6, And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believe not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Look at verse 8. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. Then the queen takes it a step further. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth or delighted in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do justice or judgment and justice. Let me just take you back to verse five. She noticed how the meat was set on the table. How the servants behaved themselves, their apparel, how the cupbearers did their job. What if the queen would have shown up and the house would have been a mess and the servants would have been out of place, not doing their job, lazy, slobs, right? Dirty clothing, shirt untucked, all that kind of thing. What kind of an impression do you think that would have made on the queen? Do you think she would have said, it was a true report I heard in my land? Not at all. She would have said, what a disappointment, what a letdown. Now, I can, I can say with confidence here, as your pastor, that you folks, you folks have not disappointed me in the past. I've, I'm much like Paul bragged about the Corinthians, I've bragged about you folks um, to other people I talk about you in my, I, I write a monthly report letter to all of my supporters in America. And you know that some of these pastors, some of these people, these Americans have come and have, have visited our church. We've had Malawians come and visit it. Uh, we've had Brother Dobbins from Zambia. We've had visitors come through. And thank God, much like the Queen of Sheba, they walk away saying, man, this, this church was an encouragement. They, they were a blessing. Brother Adrian Dominguez, I don't know if you remember him, the pastor in Colorado. Him and I, are we stay in in contact all the time. And he's constantly telling me how much he wants to come back to South Africa because he he so thoroughly enjoyed being with our church and being in this country just for the short time that he was. And that's over a year ago now. That's the kind of zeal, right? You have provoked many with that. And therefore, I, I will not shy away from reminding you of the great effect that you're having on people. Now, he, here's where we need to talk about the mechanics of it. What are the motives? Is, is our chief goal, is it our, the chief motivating factor for behaving well? Is it just to impress people? No, obviously not. Our chief goal is, is to put a smile on God's face. But secondarily, right, secondarily, we know that on God's behalf, for Christ's sake, we are affecting those people around us. And we want to do something to live a life that draws people closer to God rather than pushes them away. That's Paul's motive in doing what he's doing here. Verse five, He says, therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty. Now the word bounty, somewhat of an older English word. We still use it in English, but this is more like a bounty hunter, the way we use it now. It's the money that is given to somebody who tracks down a criminal. So it's not, we don't use it quite the same way. The way Paul's using it here is your generosity. to make up beforehand your generous offering, your bounty, whereof ye had noticed before. So Paul says, I've already notified you. You knew this was coming. That the same, that offering might be ready as a matter of bounty, of generosity, and not as of covetousness. So Paul says, guys, I've sent, I've reminded you and I talked to these other brethren. I've told them what's going on and I've stirred them up. I exhorted them so that they would go to you and and take the same excitement and eagerness and try to kind of share that with you and let it rub off on you a little bit not and I'm not doing this because I want more money Paul's not taking any of it he's not getting a commission he says guys my whole reason for doing this is so that you can put together a good offering, a generous offering, you can be a blessing to the poor saints in Jerusalem, you'll be a blessing to these Macedonian churches that have heard about you, you'll be a blessing to these brethren that I've sent. I want to see God use you. So Paul has made clear his reason for writing this and for hammering on this point so much. Guys, I'm 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 not asking on my own for my own Uh, greed. I'm not trying to get anything out of this. It's not covetousness. I just want to see your generosity shine. Now, as it comes, as it pertains to a person's motives, how can we tell what a person's motives are? Let me, in this particular case, I'll give you three things I think you could look, look for. Look at the person's bank account. The one who is pushing the button and hammering the point of giving, look at his or her own bank account. Now, when you look around Christianity today, you'll turn the TV on. Several of these Christian networks, they, it's just sermon after sermon about giving. Just take a look at the bank accounts, of the ones that are constantly talking about giving. Right? They fly in their own private jets. They live in mansions. Uh, I, I've seen them on TV, hold up their hands right, and with a ring on each finger and show it off. Say, so you, you want to see my walk with God? Here's how I praise the Lord and, you know, uh, shows off his bling, as he says. So you can look at that person's bank account. And now, now, please understand, just because somebody, you might look at a preacher's bank account, maybe he is a thrifty businessman. Maybe he's good at business, and that's fine. But this this money that he's asking for, if he is siphoning off of those offerings and just putting it into his own bank account. Remember the chapter before we talked about evidence and inquiry. People should be able to ask and say, show me the books. Show me the receipts. Where does this money go? Check the man's bank account. You'll tell very quickly what he's all about. Look at a man's bank account. See how much he gives to missions every month. See how many people he helps with that money. Whatever his income is, wherever it comes from. How does he use his money? That will tell you very much where his heart lies, right? Where the treasure is, there will the heart be also. So look at not only where his money's coming from, but where it goes out to. That's that's the bigger indicator, is how he uses the money that he gets. Uh, Check his behavior, his or her behavior. Whoever's hammering about, you know, going on and on about giving, look at how they behave. we talked about it this morning in church. Are they walking after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness? Are they constantly just trying to find a way to justify their sinful behavior? That's not somebody that you want to, you don't want to take a cue from them for, for giving. If they try to drum up an offering, you can, you should be quite leery and reluctant about giving to that, that kind of person and check their background, not just their current behavior, but their their previous behavior? Do they have a history of abusing money? You guys, beyond this, right? You can check those things. You need to be careful. By their fruits. You'll know them. But when it comes to why am I saying this? Why am I doing this? Um, at the end of the day, right? God knows my heart. God knows your heart. Why do you do what you do? You can tell people, this is why I'm saying it. And there will be some that believe you and others will misunderstand, misinterpret, misread your intentions. You can only do so much. You can't convince everybody that you mean well. And even the, even the Apostle Paul, right? we're going to see it, especially when we get into chapter 11. Paul really lays into this defense of his ministry not all of the Corinthians were convinced that Paul was a good guy. Now it seems hard to believe that knowing what we know now, but the Corinthians, some of them just had their doubts. There's only so much you can say, right? Even with Jesus, some people doubted his intentions after all that he had done for people right there at the end of his life. They still were crying out that he was a deceiver and that he was just there to overthrow the government. He was an enemy of the people. I, All these lies about him. It's heartbreaking. It hurts. One of the most painful things that I uh, I got to be careful about saying that. Let me not exaggerate that. But a very painful thing that I endured in Malawi was on occasion. And I mean, it happened a few dozen times, not every day or every week, but on occasion, a Malawian would come to me and say, you are here as a missionary, just because you want money. And I can't tell you how much that broke my heart. I, I know why I'm there. And to me, it, I was flabbergasted when I first heard that accusation. How could you think that? Of all the countries to go to, why would I go to Malawi to get money? Now, after I'd been there a while, I understood where that accusation came from because there were missionaries that came to Malawi and they had raised a lot of support from other countries. But once they got to Malawi, that support money did not get poured into the ministry. Rather, those missionaries, every weekend, instead of going to a church to preach, those missionaries would go to the lake for a a mini-vacation. Those missionaries would be at the golf course four, five, six days a week. They would eat at the fanciest restaurants and all of that money had, was, was going to their own personal lusts. So I get it why the Malawians would say, you have been telling these other churches and these other countries that you're here to help this poor nation. You're just abusing our sad situation so that you get more support money. You can do what you want. So they, they lumped me in with the general missionary population that they were aware of. What can I do about that? Nothing. I, I can tell them, listen, guys, I, I, don't, I don't do those things. I, I don't use my time and my money that same way. When, when those people would make those accusations, <laughs> you know what I tried to do? And I must admit, I, I did take it. It did hurt me. I took it personally, I did. But when they said that, rather than lash out at that individual, rather keep the conversation pointed at Jesus. And I would say, listen, you may not know me, and you may not know my intentions for being here. You don't know my motives. I don't know how I could prove it to you, but I know one thing, Jesus, Jesus has the best of intentions concerning you. So even though I might have faults and failures and you can find problems in my life, you won't find any with Christ. And I tried to keep drawing them back to that. Guys, there's only so much you can do to convince people, right? At the end of the day, you need to remember one thing. Uh, The only opinion that's going to matter is God's, right? In the end, in the end. But that being said, our ultimate, our supreme motivating factor for whatever we do should be to put a smile on God's face. But we're always keenly aware that our behavior does affect those around us. So what Paul's doing here, I think, is is the it's a very normal thing to do to try to explain the reasons why he's so concerned about this topic. Now, verse number six, this will take us to the next point in the outline multiplied results. Here's a verse that so many people are familiar with. Second Corinthians nine verse six, but this I say. So here's the point that I'm trying to make. He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. So this goes back to that bounty, right? Generous offering, I've sent these brethren. So just to remind you guys of how important it is to be generous. So guys, don't forget, I'm, I'm not being greedy. This isn't, I'm not saying this because I want more money. I, I'm not taking a commission. I'm just saying, if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. This verse has been abused over and over again. So it's gonna do us good to, to take just a moment. We're dealing with the mechanics of giving. First off, you need to have the right motives. Right? Please, God, know that it helps and, and encourages others. But part two of the mechanics of giving, when you, what you sow, the way you sow, it does affect how you reap. Now, this is obvious, right? The laws of sowing and reaping are fairly straightforward. If you put more seed into the ground, there's a greater chance of a larger crop, right? This is basic. This is a basic business principle. The more capital you have, the more you can do with it. The more you invest, the more you stand to gain. The more dividends you'll, you'll expect. That's, that's fairly straightforward. But what happens here is people take this very basic principle and they say, okay, what I'm going to do then is give and give abundantly so that I can get abundantly. You say, but what's the problem with that? The reason we give, right? The motive for our giving should not be so that I get money in return. That's the mistake that gets made. The reason I'm giving is to put a smile on God's face, to encourage those people, be a blessing and a help to them, right? And and along the way, encourage the other people that see this happening. The reaping that I'm expecting, the bountiful reaping, Paul is not saying, guys, if you give abundantly, then you are going to receive a lot of money in return. Matter of fact, let's just skip down a little bit. Verse eight, God is able to make all grace abound to you. Now, can God provide a lot of money for you? Yes, that can happen. Sure it can. I don't deny that. But when your motive for giving is that you receive more money, you are now abusing God's grace and you're using God as a banking system. And that—that that is a gross distortion of this whole this whole operation this this whole ministry, the grace of giving it's not to be meant it's not meant to be used in that way. Think about it like this one day you're going to stand before the Lord and the things that you've done for him they're going to be laid out before you. How would you like for that to go? you want to reap sparingly you want to reap bountifully well then obviously you you, you want You want to be able to stand before the Lord and for there to be rewards and for him to say, well done. And you want to stand there with confidence and not be ashamed. You would rather reap bountifully at the judgment seat of Christ. So get more involved now giving and in any other way. But even there, it's not that I want to stand before the Lord and have him dump on me all of these crowns and these you know, uh, prestigious comments and, oh, I want to hear the Lord say how great I am. That's not it. At the end of the day, what I'm seeking to do is know that I've made God happy. Right now, we know biblically how God will show his appreciation and his approval for our lives. Paul is simply reminding the, the, the Corinthians that the more you put into a thing, the more you're going to get out of it. He's not trying to tell them, guys, put together a bigger, plant a bigger seed offering in the ground and you will reap a larger paycheck. And that's how this thing gets turned around. Uh, Jesus, let's, I'll remind you of this verse. Again, verse that's often quoted with this subject, Luke 6, verse 38. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. So this is the same principle that Paul's just said. If you sow sparingly, reap sparingly, sow bountifully, reap bountifully, that's the measure that you, that you meet. How, whatever the size is of, of that investment. Jesus says, give and it shall be given to you. Is he promising that you'll get money back? Yes, actually, yes. That is what this verse says, but notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say give so that it shall be given unto you. Jesus is making a promise that if you are generous with your money, God will take care of you. God is able to make all grace abound towards you. He will provide your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. But never does God say, give so that it will be given to you. So people, they, they get this idea, well, I need more money, so what do I do? Let me give so that God gives it back to me. And now God's just your banker. Let me, let me show you how dangerous that is. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus had this to say about giving. Verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye the light of the body. thats what you're focused on, right? What you're looking at, what's your goal. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. What should our eyes be fixed on? Verse 24, you can't have two masters. It's either God or mammon. I want to keep my eye, my eyes singularly focused on God, not money. Now, it doesn't mean if I'm staring singularly at God it doesn't mean I'm ignorant of money. I understand the promise that God has made that he will provide and if I give then I can receive in return. I understand that that can happen. But that shouldn't change my motive. Verse 23 or 22 if therefore thine eye be single thy whole body shall be full of light. The Bible says in 1 John 1 verse 5, God is light. So if my eye is singularly focused on him, my whole body is full of light. If my chief goal is pleasing God, that will affect every part of my life. It will, the reason I do what I do, right? It shapes every, every aspect of my behavior. Verse 23, but if thine eye be evil. Now that evil eye has to do with greed. If you were in Matthew class this year, I gave you verses on that. If an eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. It corrupts, it taints the reason you're doing what you're doing. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Well, what was the light? God is the light. So now what, what Jesus is getting at here is the knowledge you have of God, you now twist that and use that in order to achieve some financial gain. And he says, how great is that darkness? Because you think, because you've, you've used God and mentioned God in this plan that somehow it makes it a good or holy plan. That's not the case at all. If your end goal, if the chief goal was just to get money and you're using God to get that money, how great is that darkness you've completely missed the mark. And that's why he emphasizes in the next verse, you, can only, you can't have two masters. No man can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one, love the other, hold to the one, despise the other, he cannot serve God and Mammon. So coming back to Second Corinthians nine and verse six, let's be careful about the verse, but we can't ignore it. The truth of the verse still stands. Your generosity will not go overlooked. But it, it must that generosity must be coming from a place of God. I don't care how you reward me. I don't even deserve a reward for it. After all you've given me, I'm happy to just get involved. Jesus, now listen, because he's an honorable king, he will uh, properly reward good behavior. And it's perfectly fine for him to hand out crowns and and give people inheritance in the kingdom and so forth. But to be honest, if I stood before him and and Jesus just nodded and said, well done, that's enough of recognition. I, I, I need nothing else just to know that he's happy. That would be a very bountiful way to reap. To get to the end of your life and know that you have touched the lives of others for Jesus' sake. That your life acted as a vessel a, a with transparency that allowed the light to shine through it, right? You need to be open and honest, provide for things honest in the sight of all men. You need that transparency so that the light can go through you so that people can see that light to get to the end of your life and find out that through your giving, or whatever your involvement was, you touched these lives. The more you put into this, the more you're going to get out of it, there will be multiplied results, but you have to sow bountifully. You have to get super involved. But again, I just warn you, as the Bible says in Hosea, sow in righteousness. You have to do it for the right reasons. Now, verse 7. By the grace of God, we'll end up in verse 7 tonight. Paul says, Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. So this third point in the mechanics of giving, you've got to have the right motives, recognize that it affects other people, recognize that there is a multiplied reaction and result that comes from it. And you need to be moved by God as you do it. Now, again, this, this, is, this point overlaps with the motives, right? I, I separated the idea of the motives because Paul spoke to his own personal motive in those first five verses. But in this verse, we, we see exactly the type of giving that God likes. Now, Paul says, every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. So if you're going to give, you need to be fully persuaded in your own mind. Don't write the check or make the transfer or hand over the cash because somebody else twisted your arm and guilt tripped you into giving. God should impress upon your heart what is worth your money? Now, let's be careful here. You don't give just because you feel like giving, right? You do need to take time to sit down and look at what God has already revealed. God has already told us in the Bible, there are certain things worth giving towards. Now, these things in the discipleship lesson that we have about giving, lesson eight, I I clearly show you, I point out some clear things from scripture that God has already um, designated as worthy of your money. So there are certain things that it, it transcends our feelings. We look at it and we say, we, this is necessary. This is worthy. I need to financially support this thing. But even there, we still can apply the principle of this verse. Okay, there are certain things worth my time and effort, my money. Uh, widows right poor saints uh, the local church missions those things are clearly pointed out in Scripture now how much should I give to missions how much should I give to the church now this we, we could I'm not gonna do it because this chapter is not about tithing but I will refer you to the discipleship book if you want to know more about tithing. And if you would like to know more, you can slip me a question in the comments. I don't mind answering that. But what if what if you pray about it and God says you should give more than a tenth? You should purpose in your heart how involved do I want to be in this particular project? Right? Now, as a pastor, I, I feel no uh, pain of guilt. I, I, I don't feel bad about bringing things to your attention. Right? Recently, during this lockdown time, I brought to your attention this outreach in our town that, that Leon was doing, and, and you guys were so, so supportive in every way, financially, prayerfully. Uh, I don't mind bringing to your attention things that might be worthy of your consideration, but that's, that's where I think my job stops. Right? I'll show you from the Bible what God says You know, are worthy topics. And then as needs arise, I make you aware of them. But then you need to take it upon yourself to pray about it and purpose in your heart. This is how involved I'm going to be. He goes on to say in verse 7, not grudgingly or of necessity. Let me give you a couple other words that might be used there. Not grudgingly, not reluctantly. Not out of grief. You don't want to do it because somebody made you feel bad. Now, okay, I feel bad. Let me give some money to kind of, um, you know, to soothe my conscience a little bit. Not grudgingly or of necessity that somebody is kind of twisting your arm and make, making you feel like, well, I have to. I don't want to, but I have to. If that's the attitude with which you're about to give that money, just hang on to it. I believe if I understand the heart of God correctly on this matter, God God looks at it and says, you know what? I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need your money. If you do not want to willingly give it, if you do not want to give it with the right attitude, right? So maybe we can make even a separation between the motive, the reason you're giving it, and the attitude with, with, with which you give it. I, I know that those two things go together, but... Can you see a slight difference in the two? I'm giving it because I know it's important and God said I should, right? But you can, even there, you may not do it willingly. I'll do it, but I'm not gonna be happy about doing it. So the end of the verse says, God loves a cheerful giver. So this is, the, this is the man, the woman that looks at the situation and says, what a privilege to be involved. Man, I'm so glad that I get to do Something make a difference in somebody's life, specifically in this case, to be giving. Now, I've I've said so many things about this in the past. Uh, I've I've told the stories about how the Malawians and their churches they sing and dance and clap during the offerings. You know, it's just not the culture around here. I should say, in our church, it's not it's not the culture that we have. It, we might find it. I, maybe there are some churches in South Africa that make a bigger. Um, I don't want to say a bigger deal, but do more during the offering time to show their joy. Again, at the end of the day, it it comes down to God knowing what's in your heart. Are you giving just, you know, get it out of the way, this is what I have to do? Or do you understand what a privilege it is, what you're actually supporting, the difference that you're making? You know, some people, not just in the area of giving, but in any aspect of the Christian life, they, they get discouraged and say, I just feel pressured to do things. You know, I I don't want to come to church or pray or read my Bible, but um, you know, I constantly hear it. So I just do it because I know that I have to. And uh, you should do those things. There's a lot of things in the Christian life you should do. And sometimes, even many times, you won't feel like it. Here's what happens. Whenever you get a bit discouraged and feel that pressure and you, you feel as if you're doing it grudgingly or out of necessity, whatever it is, take a step back. I, in my, what I like to do in my own life is I, I try to zoom out and I want to look at the bigger picture because at the moment, right, I feel overwhelmed. I, I lose sight of why I started down this path in the first place. But when I zoom out and look at the bigger picture and realize, wow, look at where I could have been. Look at how God has changed my life. Look back at the things God has done in your life, the experiences you've had with him and how he's manifested his love and how other people have been changed and touched through what God has done in your life. And when it, it, you just think about what a, what a blessing it is to be involved in the ministry in any way. When you zoom out and look at the big picture, and and I'm talking zoom way out, look all the way into eternity. Put yourself at the judgment seat of Christ. Think about that say, now if I'm at the judgment seat looking back at this day, I wanna be able to look the Lord in the eye and say, I did that because I loved you. I didn't feel like it in the moment, but once I stopped and thought about it, I knew that you were worth it. And therefore I was happy to do it. I think sometimes we all need to step back and take a look at why we're doing it and make sure that we're doing it with happy hearts. I think to close tonight, I, just to use the, a biblical illustration of this, right? Peter says to Jesus, yet Lord, if that's you, tell me to walk on the water and come to you. And Peter, right, initially, there's so much excitement. He steps out of the boat, he's walking on the water, and he's, I mean, just so excited to be doing this. But then the waves kick up, and the wind is boisterous, right? And Peter takes his eyes off of the Lord, and he looks at the waves, and he notices the wind, and he gets overwhelmed, and he forgot why he got out of the boat. He lost sight of it. And immediately, right, as he begins to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. Jesus gets him back in the boat, all is well, and all the men in the boat declare, truly, this man's the Son of God. Now what I learned from that is, you know, we we get started in the Christian life, our eyes are singularly focused on God, and we we know why we're walking, why we're walking this path. But then things get tough, we get overwhelmed, we get tired, we take our eyes off the lord guys when that happens and it does it will you'll get overwhelmed think man i'm just doing this because i have to i really my heart's not in it anymore reach up say lord save me from this bitter attitude let him get you back to the boat where you can stop and think about this great experience that you've been having man, you got to walk on the water for a little while You got to see the Lord Jesus Christ manifest Himself in your life in a very special way. Take a moment to take a breath, take it all in, and remind yourself, why am I doing this? And I believe it'll help you to be moved by God, whether it's giving, whether it is visiting someone else, encouraging them, passing out a track, praying for people, whatever the case is, You wanna do that cheerfully, and that will only come about if you take time to recognize why you're doing it and for whom you're doing it. Amen, all right, we're gonna stop there tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, I'll pray as always and close the service, but if you do have a question, uh, I'll check the comments before I finish the uh, live stream. So feel free to slip a question in if you have one. Father, thank you this evening. We were able to go through these uh, verses and be reminded of some things maybe, Lord, superfluous. We already knew them, but we needed to be reminded of them. Lord, help us to be clear on this, this matter of sowing and reaping. We, we don't want to sow to the flesh. We want to sow to the spirit. And we believe that if we do so abundantly, we'll reap abundantly. God, you are worth our time, our attention, And you are certainly the source of joy in our lives, Lord. How cheerfully we can get involved because of you, because you're involved, because you're the reason we're doing it. Give us a chance this week, Lord, to do something for you, to to provoke somebody else to come closer to you. Thank you for the privilege this day of serving you. Lord, I pray that you'd help each one that has listened Lord, to take what they've heard today in church and tonight. Lord, let these seeds sink deep and bring forth much fruit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, have a wonderful evening. Lord willing, we'll see you soon.